0: Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. I'm thrilled today to be speaking with University of Virginia professors Melody Barnes and Laurent Dubois, co-directors of the Democracy Initiative at the university. This interdisciplinary initiative brings together a diverse range of scholars, government leaders, practitioners, and students to study the urgent challenges facing democracy today and advancing its prospects for the future. We talk about the threats to democracy from Melody's public policy and government background and Laurent's historical perspective, the inherent conflict within democracies between disempowered groups voting for change and entrenched interests that seek to restrict access to the ballot. And we discuss that while we have a lot of work to do, reasons to be optimistic. And now, here's my conversation with Melody Barnes and Laurent Dubois. Melody Barnes and Laurent Dubois, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. It's terrific to
1: be with you. <laughs> great to be here.
0: So, Melody, let's start with you. I'd love to hear in your words what you guys do at the Democracy Initiative at the University of Virginia.
1: We blend research, bringing together all the assets of the University of Virginia, this great public university, with teaching and public policy and public engagement. And our goal is to weave those things together to take on the challenges facing democracy, both here in the United States and abroad, and to look for the opportunities that also exist and the ways that we can help shape the agendas and the debates around those topics.
0: And when and why was it started? What was the impetus?
1: The Democracy Initiative started officially in the fall of 2018, But the work on the Democracy Initiative predates that, as Ian Bacham, who's the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, brought the idea of interdisciplinary research labs to the University of Virginia, as the University of Virginia realized, not realized, but thought long and hard about its legacy, its attachment to President Jefferson, the challenges that go along with that, the opportunities, the innovation, the bold ideas, the principles of democracy, the democratic values that are attached to that, and decided that as a public university, it had something to say, but it also had a responsibility to engage in the debate. So that was the catalyst for it. Along the way, there were the events of the summer of 2017 that the entire world watched, That, again, wasn't the catalyst, but that said to the university, we really have to dig into this. It's important for us to have this conversation, not just on grounds, but around the world and with partners and communities around the world. And that led to the Democracy Initiative getting underway. And then I came on board in the fall of 2018.
0: So when you talk about the events at the summer of 2017, just to clarify, I know everybody knows about what happened in Charlottesville, but with the riots and the white supremacists, but that's what you're referring to, just exactly to put yes. it all together. Right? Yeah, that was incredibly sad. I have a lot of connections to Charlottesville and for a place that really, for me, stands for so much enlightenment to see that happen was really like a, a dagger in the heart, you know, just brutal.
1: Yeah, very
2: painful.
0: So tell me about your backgrounds and what brought you to this work. And Laurent, why don't we start with you?
2: Well, thank you. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned this term, enlightenment. I'm an 18th century historian (laughs) by training, and I've worked on the kind of French and Haitian revolutions and broadly the struggle against slavery and for human rights in that period. And then I've since worked on a, a lot of other topics. But in some ways, for me, the UVA as an institution, of course, was founded out of that kind of set of ideas of the 18th century. And this idea that a university would be a place of you know, cultivating citizenship, of of growing knowledge, of intervening in the world and and kind of making the world a better place. And I think obviously a lot of universities have that mission, but there's a particular special connection that UVA has. So I am, as a historian and a scholar who works on a lot of different topics, I've been engaged for a long time in just trying to bridge the academy and larger publics. At Duke, I created a center and ran a center called the Forum for Scholars and Publics that was really focused on that. And so the opportunity to, to work on this on a really large scale is really exciting to me. And I'm interested in just thinking about how that problem that as Melody expressed it, which is how do we connect these kind of deep research, knowledge, traditions, all of the kind of essentially all of the inheritance that we have from the past of human history to understand and engage with the very urgent challenges that we're facing right now around democracy. And it's kind of part of the challenge is how you combine things that work at very different paces like scholarship and then, you know, everyday politics. But the opportunity in particular to work with Melody and to kind of for us to collaborate on this is, is particularly wonderful.
0: And Melody, what about you? Tell me about what brought you to this work.
1: My background is in public policy. I'm a lawyer by training and had spent the vast majority of my career working in Washington in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, in the White House, and also think tanks in D.C. And as I watched the arc of national debates, what was happening to democratic institutions, What was happening in communities my appreciation for the political process continues i understand its importance but my desire to dig deeper than two and four and six year cycles would allow was overwhelming the challenges that i see facing the united states and democracies around the world go to root issues so to come to a place Like the University of Virginia, and as we've discussed, given its legacy and its history, provided an opportunity to both move fast and slow, to have these deep conversations, to engage with great scholars who are thinking over the long term, but also to hopefully bring my skill set and my background to the debate to try and help translate that scholarship and that research into solutions to important questions that we should be asking and answering right now and then have the good fortune i will pat myself on the back along with the others on the search committee to find laurent and to have him come on board as an award-winning highly regarded scholar not just in the united states but internationally i feel like hopefully that's a great team with a great team of people that we work
2: with across grounds to do this work
0: And what are some of the different projects you guys have going on at the initiative now?
2: A big part of the initiative is these rotating labs that come in for a period of three years that are based on a competitive process. Applicants from the university put together proposals that have to be collaborative in nature, bring together people across fields, and kind of focus around a particular issue. And these are quite ambitious projects around major topics. There's one on called Deliberative Media Lab about social media and democracy. One about statecraft, which is about kind of international relations and kind of democracy in that context. And one of the older ones, the first lab actually, which predates both Melody and I being there, which is on religion, race, and democracy. which has a great podcast as well called Sacred and Profane that your listeners might be interested in that deals with questions of religion and democracy. We also work closely with I'm sorry, I should have mentioned one last lab, which is the CLEAR lab, which is about corruption and democracy in kind of global context and doing some really important work on that as well. And then there will be a new lab that'll be coming in next year. So these are projects that are then to some extent connected by the permanent lab that I'll be running which is supported by a, a generous donation from John now the third that's on the history and principles of democracy and that that's kind of a, known as the core lab where we kind of have ongoing discussions about the longer term traditions history that kind of inform that work and finally there are two other projects one called the memory project which is focused now around questions of memory and history in virginia specifically but Centering that in kind of larger context, and then something called the Equity Center, which is a pretty uh, an extraordinary project that really is about the link between UVA and the community of Charlottesville, and thinks through those relationships, and again the way in which kind of participation and democracy can be core to that kind of relationship. So, but that's the just the beginning, <laughs> and we have a lot of ideas and a lot of new projects that are kind of. You know, eager t- and interested in in working with as many stakeholders as possible, with connecting with other institutions and so forth. So, as Melody and I often say, like we have a lot of ideas. <laughs> so the question is just where to prioritize. And I think you know, in general, just creating a, a zone in which these kinds of projects of experimentation and exploration can happen, and we're putting together things that might not otherwise be put in dialogue, is really the key.
0: Yeah, that's incredibly exciting because, like Melody said, it's so important to have a minds that can step back, look at the big picture. And instead of just being caught up in the news cycle at the moment, you know, there's a lot of people thinking that way. Let's talk about the challenges we're facing right now, first in the United States. So Melody, how would you rate the health of our democracy today on a scale of one to five, if five is flourishing and one is on life support?
1: It's interesting you use the phrase life support because after, well, it won't be a surprise knowing my background that I am a Democrat. And I mentioned that because after the election in 2020, this past presidential election, and people were, I knew a number of people, obviously the majority of Americans that were excited that Joe Biden had been an elected president. And what I said to people was that our work has only just begun. That what we've done is managed to put our country on life support because you can have democratic institutions on paper without having vibrant and robust and healthy democratic institutions, and certainly not have a vibrant and healthy democratic culture. And those issues are of grave concern to me and to others. And I know that Freedom House just recently put out their report on democratic health globally, and they continue to focus on the fact that we are globally backsliding and that the United States is similarly backsliding. Our peers are no longer the peers that we would imagine when we rate ourselves and when we look at threats to the press, when we look at threats to the courts and to the justice system, to the fact that people don't trust democratic institutions Those are very, very grave concerns. And without those and other issues being addressed, we will continue to slide backwards.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to talk about democracies on a global level as well after this. But, Laurent, in terms of the U.S., what do you see as the greatest threats to democracy today? I mean, would you characterize them? Melody listed several. I mean, would you put them as something that there's, there's a manageable number of major threats, or is it like death by a thousand cuts or kind of a combination of the two?
2: I mean, the difficult thing I think historically is to sort of many of the things we're seeing now are actually been enduring problems within American democracy. So we're dealing with sort of, sort of sedimented situations, I think that have come from across our history, right, that are in some ways coming to a head or kind of being articulated in new ways. But obviously, kind of issues of of race, of inequality, just the sort of structure of our government and, you know, has always been contested, right? Uh, We obviously had a civil war around these sorts of issues. So there's a way in which the civil rights movement was also kind of addressed some of these same core issues. So we've, in a sense, we are in a moment that's a maybe i think a particularly intense moment that we might be able to compare to other moments of sort of strife and transformation but it's not the first time obviously you know and so i do think putting it in context is helpful in that sense because it's also true that at those other moments you know there were people had strategies and approaches and mobilized in certain ways in order to to overcome some of those challenges and kind of reassert the basic core principles of democracy There are very particular challenges of the moment including things just like the way we consume media i think is a major issue but that's something sort of technology and knowledge and how it kind of sort of changes our relationships i think is a big thing and that's definitely new you know that's something that's different than something we faced before and then so i think figuring out what are the elements that are maybe creating new problems as well as giving a sense of the enduring issues And I, you know, the contradiction, I think, and this is true in the United States and globally, is that institutions are in a certain way in crisis, but we also see a huge amount of investment and participation among young people, right? In this country, for instance, you know, we're in some ways at really high levels of democratic engagement. And that's true globally as well, which is very inspiring and important, you know, because that's at the end of the day, that is what democracy is about, obviously. So I guess I feel both kind of worry and hope at the same time. Can I add something? Of course. To what Laurent
1: was saying, one I, I completely agree with what he just described, and but I wanted to touch on the social media piece of this a little bit more because one of the things that is different from the past, even though many of the issues that we are grappling with are chronic issues, they are enduring issues. They're not twenty-year issues. They are four hundred-year-old issues. But social media and the ability to communicate and to scale the challenge to democracy is another layer of problem that we have. We have seen social media be used for good to create democratic movements, but we also have to grapple with the fact that it is being used to quickly transmit images, language, and communications that are growing the opposition to democracy, authoritarian fascist action at a very, very rapid rate. And that adds complexity to our ability to address these challenges.
0: So, I mean, as we've already discussed, all these different threats, coming from every angle, old, new, and some more brazen, some more insidious. And I wish we could really go deep on all of them, but that's what you guys work on every day. I would like to just hone in on one area and that's voting rights, partially because that's, I mean, the right to vote sits at the very crux of a democracy. And it's also really under fire right now. I mean, we're seeing some exciting developments in Congress, which I want to talk about, but then there's you know, hundreds of voter suppression laws being drafted at the state level to stop certain people from voting. And that's why some people believe that they're going to win elections for the future. So anyhow, I wanted to talk about what's in Congress, H.R. 1 or the For the People Act, which would make it easier to vote, make it easier to register to vote, curtail gerrymandering, make elections more secure, and reform the campaign finance system that's been flooded with dark money since Citizens United, and the other is HR four, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that would reinstate the provisions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that were gutted by the Supreme Court in Shelby versus Holder in 2013. So, I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether, well, first of all, how important are those those various elements that are being addressed by the bills, and how does undermining them present a threat to democracy? And then finally, if you think legislation will solve this problem, and maybe, Laurent, you want to start.
2: I mean, I think they're absolutely vital. You know, there's a way historically you can say that it's only really in 1965 that the United States becomes a, a full democracy, right? I mean, until then, you essentially have have significant parts of the population that are refused voting rights. And in a sense, since 1965, it's still been a battleground. So I, that's one of these cases where we're in a very, very long struggle that began right at the time of the American Revolution has kind of gone on since i do think it's fundamental you know of course the basic goal of a democracy has to be participation and the ability of all people to participate at the local level at the you know at all these different levels so many of the issues facing this country have to be worked out at the local level as well so the kind of you know the interface between the federal which is really important and then all of the ways in which this is going to shape Critical questions like, you know, policing, for instance, is a case that will only ever be worked out at the level of basically cities and counties. You know, that's where people can make a difference in by voting and, and so forth. So I think all up and down the scale, we do have in many ways like a great system, I think, that has a lot of possibility, a lot of modes of participation in this country. In other words, the possibilities for citizen participation are enormous in the United States. But it is, to me anyway, very troubling that there's such an emphasis on actually reducing that basically as a, as a strategy. That just seems so problematic, right? And it does sort of speak to a kind of fear that if – and this, to be honest, is also an old fear. I mean there are always people have been really worried about what happens in democracy – because if everyone has a voice, you know, that means that groups of people who are disadvantaged or have a problem with the system will have a voice, right? Which means there's going to be change. <laughs> and so, so I mean, true democracies are, are societies that change. And of course, change can be scary depending on where you sit.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I feel so strongly about this issue. The very piece, first piece of legislation I worked on when I first started working as a congressional staffer on the House Judiciary Committee on Civil and Constitutional Rights was a voting rights bill. It was reauthorization of Section 203 of the Voting Rights Bill Act, which helps language minorities have access to the ballot. So indigenous communities that don't have written language or those who, for whom English is not a first language who are American citizens. And what I think is the fundamental question is whether or not we are willing as a nation to recreate American apartheid, where we are willing to have a society in which a growing majority of American citizens don't have access to the ballot. And it's interesting when we look at 1965 And I worked on a podcast recently called LBJ and the Great Society. And I hosted that. And it was fascinating doing the research and listening. We used the tapes of LBJ's, Lyndon Johnson's presidential recordings, his telephone calls, his meetings with the civil rights community. And one of the things that he says to Humphrey is the thing that we have to do, absolutely what we just did with the Civil Rights Act of 64 is important. But the most critical thing that we can do for Black Americans, which is the focus then, is to ensure that they have the vote. Because if you they, people have the vote, then they've got power. And this is a question and about power. And power is contested. And what we are seeing take place now across the United States is an effort to disempower people of color, poor people, and others who realize now what it means to have access to the ballot and the kinds of changes that are being made, as Laurent said, because they have access to the ballot. And H.R. 4 and H.R. 1 are direct efforts to try and ensure that in a country that prides itself in the rights and responsibilities of citizens and many who wrap themselves in the symbols of American democracy, whether or not people are actually going to be able to exercise their rights as citizens. And if in fact your ideas are so good, put them in the marketplace of ideas and let people decide at the ballot booth whether or not those ideas are going to be successful. Everywhere else, we're happy to have competition, but apparently when it comes to power, and ideas, we want to strip away competition by stripping people of their rights as citizens. And I think it is the biggest challenge that faces the country right now because it is so fundamental to
0: democracy. Yeah, I agree. But of course, I would love to be proved wrong. But nobody thinks it's going to pass either one of these because of the filibuster, which I think, in and of itself, everyone agrees is pretty anti-democratic. I mean, do you guys? Do you, do either of you see? Uh, path forward without this legislation?
1: Well, I think, and this is probably which is most disturbing to me, one, this will take place, these battles will take place state by state. And what we're witnessing now, which is interesting, for example, in Georgia, because it is such a fascinating case, and even as I watched the Joe Biden win in Georgia, as I watched the two new senators when in Georgia and whether or not you're a Democrat or Republican, the reason I mention those things is because what we witnessed are so many people who were new voters who participating in those elections. And what I think we're seeing now are companies being called to account and others. Are you going to support a process that is so anti-democratic in our state And I think that's going to be replicated state by state by state as legislatures work to either pass or defeat these very anti-democratic measures. And then ultimately, this will become, I think, a question for the Supreme Court. I think some of these measures will make their way to the Supreme Court, and it will be interesting to see with the reconstitution of the court where the court lands and i think that is also of grave concern to many many individuals.
0: Yeah, that doesn't give me a lot of comfort. Right. So let's talk about democracies globally. Sort of using the same metric we used for democracies in the US. Laurent, how would you describe the health of democracies internationally on sort of 1 to 5? I know obviously it's it's all across the board, but in general how are we doing? How is democracy doing in the world? <laughs>
2: I mean, I think we're in at a three because I think there's both very positive things and very, you know, negative things. And it really is variable. I was just discussing yesterday, the situation in Senegal with a colleague, Felwin Saar, who teaches at Duke and who had just written a piece about this. But so Senegal, for instance, last five days, a kind of threat to democracy by the sitting president who seems to be leaning towards trying to have a third term, which he shouldn't have, and has been arresting opposition followers. And then this huge kind of civil society response, which seems to have like beaten back that process, right? And and youth being involved. Different kind of situation in Haiti, but also like another country I know where people are very involved. And you can kind of multiply that. I do think one of the damaging things I noticed in the United States over the past four years is that our kind of imagination, I think, has narrowed. Like the amount of, of news that's about other countries is less and less. I think there was just this kind of constant mode, and I think that's a bit of a problem because I think the story of democracy is going to unfold globally, and in many ways, it's going to be what happens in Brazil, what happens in different Latin American countries, what happens in Africa. I think those will be really critical to determining how this sort of what the future of this system is. Right, and at the same time, the role that the United States off for a long time played of a kind of a symbol of democracy that's been very frayed over the last couple of years as well. Obviously, so there's. A totally different configuration i think we just have to really ask core questions and these are the questions i think that like the youth in senegal are asking people in in all over the place are asking which is like well what what does democracy really mean what's it really going to look like you know i think there's a real interest in kind of a true democracy in which people have a voice in which they can kind of again create change in situations that are situations of deep inequality you know, difficult legacies that come from the past of different systems and so forth. So, I, you know, it's that kind of combination of seeing if people didn't care and we saw the degradation of institutions, I would be extremely worried. But I think people care a great deal. And it's a moment of conflict. It's not a moment of, I think, and things things are resolved. And it's even the kind of the voter suppression stuff is, it's reactive and it's a mark, it's a measure of how much things are changing. You know, in other words, you wouldn't have to do that if things, if things weren't changing. And so I think that's part of, again, thinking historically, these are measures when there are these kinds of backs and forth. It's precisely because the culture is changing, I think. And Melody often emphasizes that the kind of core practice and culture questions, there is a huge shift going on. And we, you know, you can lose sight of that, but there are a number of things that, like if you had asked me 20 years ago, whether they would have happened in the United States, I wouldn't have predicted a lot of the things that have happened. I would have thought they were unthinkable. You know, I would have thought just as a, as a little interest of mine, which is sort of the role of athletes, for instance, in politics. Right? Twenty years ago, if you had said to me, "Oh, you know, basically there's going to be all these activist athletes speaking up," you know, the WNBA, <laughs> the the role that the Atlanta team played in the elections, I would have said, "Oh, no, I don't think so. That's just you know, it's sort of apolitical, and there's very few examples." And that's completely changed. You know, so. Just there are a lot of things like that, that I guess the main thing is that this is an unpredictable situation, we have to be concerned, but I think the, certainly the jury's not out. And I think the histories that we can look at suggest that there's all of these situations in which people faced massive hurdles against democratic participation, that they actually overcame, too, in this country and others. So. I guess that's that's where the mix of sort of worry and hope that I mentioned earlier comes
0: in. Yeah. Well, that actually sounds better than I thought. So that's good. Um. <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, Laurent sounds so much more optimistic than I am.
1: <laughs> I
2: know, It's a bit of my reputation. And I do recognize that. I'm usually, I mean, I quoted the, the line to Melody the other day of Antonio Gramsci, who's like an Italian thinker who wrote these famous prison notebooks when he was imprisoned under the fascist regime. But he has this line where he says, optimism of the will Pessimism of the intellect. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like like we do need to be lucid about like to how worrisome things are. But it's true that yeah, it's just true that I think people do rise to the occasion again and again, and and a lot of things that you would have thought you know at certain moments in history would have been impossible have become possible. So
0: right. So this is a sort of a two part question. First, why is it dangerous to us when other democracies falter? I mean, can we still live? Can we be our own island in this? global world, the very interconnected world we live in. And then the other side of it is, do we still have a moral obligation to shore up other democracies when we're kind of floundering ourselves? Do we have the credibility? And maybe, Melody, you want to start with this one? Yeah,
1: I I worry about our credibility. On the one hand, it was fascinating to me after the 2020 election to watch world leaders you know, run, not walk, to the microphone to say, <laughs> hey, great, this, this is a good thing. And because of the role that America has played, and that doesn't mean people have always loved what America has done, but certainly America as an important democratic nation Um, as a global democratic leader, has been respected in many regards and thought to be an important ally and partner in so many different ways, whether it's in multilateral institutions, the bully pulpit of America, American forces across the arc of history, which sometimes have been used for ill, but in many times used and uh, drawn in very importantly to help stop the march of, of fascism. So I recognize that people appreciate America's role, but at the same time, as I engage with people in different parts of the world, they say, okay, I hear you all saying America's back as part of a global community. But it's a, I guess it's what Reagan trust but verify. And there's a lot of verification and maybe some questions around the trust, maybe wanting to, but needing to see more. And the steps are being taken from my point of view in areas like climate change, for example, when it comes to fighting the COVID 19 pandemic. And even the way we articulate that and the language that we use, all of those things are important steps that are being taken by this country to re-enter the global community in an important way. But I think our credibility is unquestionably has been damaged. And as with any relationship, it
2: takes a while to, to build the trust back.
0: Yeah. Laurent, do you have anything to add?
2: Well, yeah, I think that, I mean, some of it is definitely the internal work would be the most important, I think, for the external (laughs) influence, right? I mean, I think it's important for people to say, you know, oh, there was a crisis there and there was a threat and the institutions worked and that sort of reminds us what democracy is. So I do think that's right. You know, the United States does have a really mixed record. I mean, it depends where you're sitting. So in the America, in Latin America and the Caribbean, for instance, a lot of American interventions in the 20th century were basically anti-democratic in many, many cases, right? Sort of for reasons that had to do with the Cold War and strategic reasons, basically strategy being put over democracy in many cases. So, and I think at the same time, so people have a very complex, certainly in Latin America, and I would say Africa too, have a very complex reading of America where they understand that the foreign policy having often been anti-democratic, often have great admiration at the same time or interest in American culture and American people. And many are in diasporic relationships where they have, you know, people who live here now, right? So the thing is that what happens in almost any Latin American country is also just connected through families and networks to populations in the United States. Mexico and the United States are totally linked together at this point, Caribbean countries in the United States. So I think that we live in this kind of global world, not just because of communication, but literally our country is composed of, of families that stretch across different countries and sort of things go back and forth. So I would say, I think that the, in some ways, again, I think what people have often done, and I've seen this in many cases, people draw on certain aspects of America that they admire, while also being a little careful about, you know, parts of American power that may conflict with what they're trying to do. And I think that's going to continue. So I think the real question is, what are the institutions that we can build what are the types of connections that we can build and some of those are government and some of those are other kinds you know the the amazing thing about a university is that these are global institutions and universities are a place where we can have the kinds of conversations you know to get back to the democracy initiative we'd like to kind of support the kinds of conversations that are sort of horizontal conversations between you know members of civil societies in different parts of the world who are confronting actually similar things and also equally committed to democratic participation so it's you know it's who's talking to who i think that's that's also going to really determine things
0: Absolutely. Talking to each other, just talking to each other will get Mm -hmm. us a long way. Mm -hmm. On a national level, on a global level, we've all sort of retreated to our corners and live in our bubbles. And even at the university, I'm sure you see, you know, the impact on dialogue. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the future. What would be on each of your wish lists? What changes should we be instituting now to restore faith in the system and ensure that our democracy can not only withstand threats in the future, which are no question coming, but can actually go back to thriving? You start, Laurent. You seem yeah. ready to.
2: <laughs> I mean, I really think that you know there's a lot of positive possibilities that we're seeing now, right? Which is the, I mean, thinking about grappling with climate change, which is obviously a global issue, right? There's no solution that's not global to that problem. Thinking about migration differently, thinking about all these questions, I think, you know, some of it is at least sort of just trying to center expertise, sort of knowledge, being able to sort of think about problems that create context in which there can be debate around these sorts of things. I mean, that's going to be the only way to progress. And, you know, we can do that in small spaces and try to kind of move out from there. I do think being principles, right, and just constantly reiterating, and Melody did really eloquently earlier, but just reiterating what are the basic principles, right, we have to keep just insisting on the people should have the right to participate in the future. Of their, of their own individual lives, which are always collectively involved with their societies and their institutions, right? That's the basic promise of democracy is that you can you can have an impact on your future, not just as an individual, because an individual is always part of a larger whole, but you can have an impact on those institutions. So I do think it's gonna just take repetition and, and that to kind of, but of course, and the other thing is there needs to be examples of some kind of progress, right? And I think whatever, even if it's not everywhere, if we can point to some areas if we can handle the pandemic and move to a better place i think that will be something where people will think okay that was a major crisis lots of mistakes were made you know people were lost but we can think about moving forward you know so those kinds of moments of hope i think can tend to reinvigorate people's faith and i think that's going to be really important but for that of course you know the governments have to deliver and people do have to see improvements so that they can feel like there's there's a, an important worth in participation too
0: Right. Melody, what do you think? What's your governmental slash policy perspective?
1: There are a few things that come to mind, and several of them echo what Laurent has said. But to put them in a couple of baskets, I'll use one called January 6th. And we have to understand and wrestle with and address And have accountability for what happened on January the 6th, because it reflects something. It was a day, but it reflects something much larger, something that's been growing in American culture, something that is a threat to democratic institutions for quite some time. And we both need to understand the institutional threats and obviously the security threats, but we can't let, and and this is gonna sound strange perhaps. We can't just call this a a problem of security at the U.S. Capitol. It isn't as though we forgot to turn on the alarm and the burglar got in and took our television. That something much larger, in addition to logistical and security challenges, took place on January 6th. And there has to be accountability for that. I wrote a paper or an op-ed with one of the historians at UVA who's an expert on the Civil War, and we compared what happened after the war or didn't happen after the Civil War and therefore lingered and festered in American culture to what is happening today. One of the things that I'm interested in is the role of truth and reconciliation, accountability, and healing processes. How those have been used both globally and also domestically in Maryland, in Greensboro, in Maine, for example, to start to wrestle with issues, but that also starts with truth. And we have to move beyond a fictionalized narrative that's been created of the country that we're all victims of. I mean we've we've learned fictional history about our country and that was by design but to wrestle with the truth so that we can then make smart policy decisions and determine how we're going to address these issues and we can heal as a country but we can't skate past it so that's a basket and then touching on something that Laurent was talking about which for me the importance of participation, and we talked about the Voting Rights Act, but also how that is coupled with government working. I mean, people need to see that government on all levels is working and working effectively to improve their lives, and that they believe that the process is a fair one, that it's not rigged, so that people don't disengage or think that's something, why would I participate in that when it's rigged? So, those things need to be coupled, and government, and you know I am hopeful for some things that are on the horizon that people will get a sense of that. And then the final thing I'll say related to that is not only on the federal level, but I think importantly on the local level that that is a place local government communities are are laboratories of democracy it's a place where people can and should engage with one another. And it is a place where we can also think about equity. We can think about participation. We can think about access to community assets in an important way that is, again, transformative for people's lives. They can participate and recognize the role of what it means to be a citizen. Citizenship is a verb. It's not a noun.
0: I feel like, Laurent, you've been pretty hopeful. This question I have next is, what gives you hope? Maybe you've answered that already, but Melody, and I'll come back to you. Melody, is, what about you?
1: <laughs> the Eeyore of the conversation. <laughs> and I really am a hopeful person. And I am about democracy as well. I, I think it is important to have a clear-eyed, honest view about democracy and that, as I often say to people, democracy isn't guaranteed. It is not inevitable. We have to fight for it every single day. And what makes me hopeful is that I feel that there are growing numbers of people who are engaged in the fight for democracy. What deeply concerns me is that I feel as though the the challenges that we've have built into the fabric of democracy in the United States, for example, that we we are repeating and rhyming those challenges. And people say, oh, well, you know, it's better than it was in, you know, 1876. Well, it's like, yeah, but shouldn't we have learned the lesson from 1876? And so that's what gives me concern. We keep doing the same thing. And as I've said to people, it raises the question for me, are some of these problems and challenges in our DNA, which is troubling because DNA doesn't change, or is it more like a broken bone that can be set and fixed and can be strong? And I get up every day fighting for, hoping for the fact that these are bones that can be reset or set properly for the first time. And that is the optimistic, hopeful part of me, even as I recognize the challenges that we face.
0: Okay,
2: Laurent. <laughs> yeah, and my you know, my academic peers often tease me for being overly optimistic. Like, you know, they're like, You wrote this whole book about this depressing thing, but you always end on this hopeful note, you know. So and I mean it is true that some of my early work was, you know, the first books I wrote were about the Haitian Revolution, which is a moment when enslaved people successfully overthrew the system, right? And created something else. So I feel like I mean I'm definitely attracted to those stories as a historian that that do give us hope because I think you know we need hope basically. Some of it is that I think we you know we could it's of course there's all kinds of good reasons not to be hopeful but you know we're not going to progress without some hope. And so in that sense I think it's important to keep that alive but it's also just true that again I I feel like it's exactly what melody said which is like what's depressing is that we're still fighting the same battles and then at the same time what is inspiring is that of course, there are going to be those who don't want sort of things to change. There's all kinds of reasons why we, we, we shouldn't be surprised in some ways at what we see, unfortunately. But we do have a set of ideas and institutions, I think, that we can kind of utilize that at least we have in in front of us that can be utilized to try to make things better. So there's that advantage, at least. So, so I do remain hopeful. And I think that the kind of you know, again, the kind of energy and positivity and future orientation among youth and and not only youth, obviously older people too, <laughs> is important, right? And I think if we just kind of need to tap into that and amplify those things, and we, you know, we can see things also in, at local levels in the United States. Extraordinary change has happened in a lot of places, you know, for better or worse. But there's kind of like so I was working at Duke and living in Durham and seeing like how a city can change and evolve in all kinds of interesting ways because of involvement. So I think there again, I think there's. But none of those changes will happen without some kind of reaction. I think, in general, that is unfortunately kind of a historical lesson. So,
0: so we need to keep keep working, gird our loins. Exactly. It's yes, not going to be easy. It isn't
2: going yeah. Exa- I mean, maybe some of it is that I'm not surprised to some extent by some of the things because every period has these kinds of back and forths and it's depressing but it really is constitutive of how human history moves you know and so yeah. kind of yeah
0: yeah well thank you for mentioning old people by the way because uh, yeah it's
2: like <laughs> old, <laughs> yeah old people are just pretty, this
0: no, podcast yeah. has a lot of people i won't call them old um, i'm going to call them not people the youth um wise
2: youthful in spirit and mind you know and we're like,
0: all working really hard well melanie barnes and laurent dubois thank you so much for joining me today it's really been an honor to speak with you and i'm so comforted by the fact that great minds like yours at the University of Virginia are working on this and thinking about these important things. So thank you so much for all you do.
1: Well, thank you. This was just a delight to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. It's been a great
2: honor to be here and we're, we're so happy we had the conversation.
0: Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook.